been thinking a lot this week about the first episode I did of this show. Ray Wiley Hubbard was the very first guest. And I remember driving up to Bowling Green, Kentucky and meeting Ray at a venue after sound check. He was very generous and very optimistic and supportive about this whole thing. But I was doing a lousy job of explaining what I hoped this show might be, what it might become. I was trying my best to be humble about it, but you know, I had some very definite, strong ideas about what I wanted the show to be. Some of them were probably a little too high-minded for my own good, no matter how humble I was trying to be. So at one point, after I was probably going on about some delusional Alan Lomax ideas that I might have had, some parallels I was trying to bring forth, Ray just smiled really big and leaned back in his chair and said, Keep the dream alive, Otis. Keep the dream alive. I laughed really good, and that saying has stuck with me ever since then. I'll be around the house, and I'm an extremely opinionated person, and I try my best to keep it to myself. But sometimes we just let it fly without realizing it. So when I get on my high horse and I start throwing about a bunch of high-minded ideas and highfalutin facts and opinions, I'll stop myself and I'll think about Ray. I'll say, keep the dream alive, Otis. Keep the dream alive. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Ray Wiley Hubbard. Ray is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Wimberley, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Ray at raywiley.com. Those of you who know me know that I think Ray Wiley Hubbard is a national treasure. And I have nothing but love and respect for him and his wife, Judy. It was great to get to go and visit them at their home in Wimberley, Texas. We sat down in his living room and recorded this. After this, we talked for another 45 minutes. He told some stories that might not be fit for broadcast. Who knows? Ray's one of the great storytellers of his generation, so I was really happy to hear that he'd written a book. He'd written an autobiography called A Life Well Lived, and it's available from his website. I believe it's a website exclusive, but I highly recommend it. And we'll start out with Ray reading from that book, and then I believe he reads something else from there a little bit later. But I enjoyed this very, very much, and I hope you enjoy this also. Here's Ray Wiley Hubbard. All right, this is from the book. Okay, this is going to be a whore dog gig. I want you to know it up front. I would advise you not to take it if you have any misgivings at all. 
It's called the Texas Redneck Games, and it is in East Texas, and it will be crappy, but the money is really good, and it's one seventy-five minute set and $2,500, and I told them they could not advertise your name in Dallas, and we could really use the money. You could pay whoever you wanted to play with you, like 300 a man, and after expenses and commissions, we would net a grand, 1200 bucks. And we kind of need the money, and no one in Austin would find out, and it would be just play, take the money, and run. And how bad could it really be? I mean, after all, you wrote Redneck Mother, so you kind of started this celebration of low-life white trash motherfuckers anyway, so what do you think? Judy waited for my answer, knowing I would say yes, but giving me a chance to say no. I say, yeah, how bad could it really be? Uh, I mean, after all, just Rick and I opened for David Allen Coe at this club called Gators in Gun Barrel City, Texas, and the opening band before us was a Leonard Skinner Guns N' Roses tribute band, and that went pretty well. You know, so so we get to the side of the games about 9 o'clock, and it was like a 1930 Oklahoma dust storm. From the earth to the sky, there is this horrible brown hazy cloud blocking out the full moon that is created from every off-road vehicle sold in the south since 1980, roaring all over this giant darn field with Texas and rebel flags flying from the handlebars. And there are more locusts swarming up in the air than there were because of Yahweh's curse upon Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. I'm getting sick to my stomach, and we pull up to the stage... And the band opening for us is playing Friends in Low Places and throwing condoms with their logo on them to the crowd. (laughs) The promoter comes up and tells us the redneck comedian from Nashville got too drunk to perform, but crawled on stage during the wet t-shirt contest and started following the girls and got a microphone and started making comments so rude even the drunk rednecks in the crowd were offended and threatened to beat the shit out of him. The promoter had to hold a fifth of bourbon in front of him to get him off stage into a pickup truck to take him to the hotel. As George and I walk down toward the midway looking for the food tents, we hear the MC announce that there's been a tie in the butt crack contest. <laughs> this, is, this is true. I mean, I forgot, you know. He said, uh, I've just lost my appetite. And there's one other little thing here, just a second, see if I can find it. Oh, yeah. I see. As we're waiting in line at some sausage stand, the guy in front of us who has no shirt on is talking to a 20-something redneck girl, and she asks him about the Chinese symbol that had tattooed on his neck. He says this, and this is a direct quote, that's my name in Oriental. She says, cool. As we walk away, George says he always wondered what the Chinese symbol was for Bubba. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, uh, it gets worse from there. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's why it was a gig. But the weird thing about it, let me just I'll skip all this other stuff, is that, uh, so we go on stage, right, after this deal. Said we are rock and roll, we are decadent, we are golden. After every song, I shout, is anybody drunk yet? The roar from the crowd is deafening. Now, Scrappy has played with Ian McGlagan, and Ron Wood has set in with him. George has done gigs with Chris Robinson, Jacob Dillon, the Dixie Chicks, and Joe Walsh. Darren Hess has played with Green on Red, James McMurtry, and Bruce Robinson. All three have done late-night TV shows and rock festivals and toured Europe and Japan. Yet each one will tell you that the East Texas Rednecks game, they play with me for $300 
this dusty bug Phil night near Tyler Tyler is their favorite gig of all time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some stuff in there about people, you know, copulating in front of our van, but you know, we don't. That was one of my gigs. <laughs> That's a whore dog gig. Does that answer your question? <laughs> There, there was a guy, did you ever see the movie Songwriters, one with Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and everything? Okay, there was a character in there played by Rip Torn, and uh, he played this character named Dino, who was like a promoter. Well, that was based on a real guy uh, named Gino McCausen, who had 57 doors there in uh, Dallas. And Gino, he, there's some stories about him. He always treated me great, you know, except that 57 doors, I was kind of the house band there. You know, because we, you know, we shared a number of, you know, bad habits. And uh, I was kind of the house band there. I mean, I opened for everybody from Bill Monroe to uh, Mimi Farina. I mean, you know, it was just, it was just a great opportunity. We were playing there, so it had fit, it fit seven doors. It was just this funky old club there. And so um, Gino came up one time and said, oh, hey, man, in two weeks uh, I got uh, – Commander Cody coming up. Once you start, you know, pitching it from the stage. So I'd go up there and say, hey, okay, get your tickets for Commander Cody. And, uh, you know, two weeks is going to be here and everything. So we'd promote it, you know, at the, from the gig and everything. He'd put up posters and everything. So he said, came up and said, okay, I want you to open for Commander Cody that night. Great. So we're up there playing. Hey, Commander Cody's going to be here, you know, two weeks from now. Commander Cody be here a week from now. So anyhow, that Sunday is a Sunday afternoon. It's in August. Remember that? So we, so we get there, you know, at the gig that afternoon. So in case you know, uh, so Gino come and said, "Leave your go ahead and leave your equipment." So we don't really need to move our equipment. So Commander Cody, sound check. No, no, they're they're running a little bit late. Go ahead, leave your stuff up there. So anyhow, we leave our stuff up there, and so the doors lock open at seven, I think. And this is August; it was hot in Dallas. So anyhow, Gino comes up and says, "Okay." Uh, so he goes up and he opens. Goes up by the front door and he has Gary McDonald stand there with like a a, a tire <laughs> or a bat, and then he has one of the girls come up and he brings a keg of beer with a bunch of paper cups right by the door, and he says, "Okay, I want you to get up there and start playing," and uh, and I go, "What's going on?" He said, "Well, uh, Commander Cody's uh, bus broke down. They're they're not going to be able to make it." I went, "Oh man!" And so, um. So he opened the door, and these people been out there waiting. So he came in, and tickets were like two bucks. Now, you could see me for 50 cents. You know, that was my price back then. You know, maybe a dollar on the weekends. But Commander Cody was like, I don't know, two, three bucks. So people had been out there. So he came up and had Gary Mack this tire and this girl pouring beer out of this cheap beer out of a keg. And I says, y'all come on in. So he says, Commander Cody can't make it tonight, but Ray Wiley Hubbard's playing, you know, beer, free beer tonight as long as it lasts. You know, so people – Came on in, they paid $2 to see me, which the night before they could have seen me for 50 cents. So we got up there and played, and everybody got drunk and all that stuff. And, um, you know, come to find out later, Commander Cody had never been booked. (laughs) (laughs) There, you know, there was no radio or TV. It was just from the club promoting it, you know. So, uh, Gino, I still made the same amount of money, but, uh, you know, he had a packed house on a Sunday. And he just was out, you know, a few kegs of beer, you know. So, uh, but he always uh, treated me great, man. I mean, we'd go up there and uh, to get paid, and there'd always be some, you know, cocaine and a gun on the table, 
you know, it was just one of those things. And, uh, it was just kind of those crazy days, but, uh, yeah, we, we had some great gigs there, man. And so yeah, he got in a big pissing match with, uh, the guy who, uh, ran all the vending machines there in Dallas, which back in those days was kind of, you know, pretty shaky. So anyhow, we, we, we'd play and we'd just leave our gear there. Right. So we showed up <laughs> one night to play and he had got in a pissing match with the vending machine about, you know, cause he figured out a way to get the quarters out of the pool table. You know, somehow he had, had a key made. And so he would like, so they were shorting. He was shorting the guy who had, had the vending company. So we show up, and all of a sudden, there's chains on the doors, and there's like these Doberman Pinscher attack dogs loose inside. Is the guy that opened up the door, put these dogs in there, and then chained it back. So if anybody tried, you know, so we're up there, and our gears in there, and these dogs are, you know, really. And so Gino dries up. I go, what, what about our gear? And he goes, oh, we're closed tonight. <laughs> and then about, so we left, and about an hour later, he called me up and said, hey, we're back open. So we go back down there, and obviously had made a deal with uh, BNB vending, and uh, we went back and uh, you know played that night. <laughs> but yeah, it was a, it was quite an adventure back then. So I was 25, 26 years old, living in Red River, New Mexico, in the 70s, and Jerry Jeff comes into town on a Wednesday. Everybody is so excited. Everybody's going, hey, your friend is the guy that wrote Mr. Bojangles. He's like a star. And we never met a famous songwriter before, and he's famous, and he's here in town, and wow, we're happy to have the guy who wrote the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's big hit song right here in our town. And this is great for the community, and and boy, howdy, this is so cool having Jerry Jeff staying in our town. A Friday... People were coming up to me saying, when uh, do you think your friend is going to leave? I think it might have been Bud Shrake who said there are people on earth older than Jerry Jeff, but he's been awake longer. Somewhere around 1980, the Los Gonzo band, Paul Piercy, John Emmett, and Bob Livingston, left Jerry Jeff and became my band. They didn't know it at the time, but in hindsight, it's kind of like they just traded for a different seat on the Titanic. <laughs> That's pretty much the way it was back then. How did you meet Jerry Jeff? It was up in Dallas. There was uh, I was in high school. Went to high school with Michael Murphy, now Michael Martin Murphy and B.W. Stevenson. And there was a really a great little folk scene up there. And there's a great folk club called uh, the Rubiot, run by a guy named Ron Shipman. And it was just uh, about the size of a two car garage. And it just uh, he had just built a little stage, and uh, they served uh, you know punch and coffee and tea and everything and so the first time but it was where everybody the folk scene was and so first time i saw jerry jeff was sitting down there and, and uh, they had this little statue of pan the guy with the flute and you know o- over in the corner about five or six feet just up there across from the stage now i don't know if jerry jeff practiced this or not but anyhow I don't even think they had a PA system. They just had a little stage there. But all of a sudden, he comes out strumming. Telling him, I'm singing about the drifting way of life. Just walking through the crowd, and he gets up on stage. He takes his hat off, and he sails it across the crowd, and it lands on this statue. <laughs> Ain't nobody about you know. And all of a sudden, I just went, that's the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And then, uh, and it was, you know, it was just so that was, So we got to, uh, you know, met Jerry Jeff, and uh met him and then there was a fellow named Donnie Brooks 
who was a harmonica player. And uh, Jerry Jeff had this 1938 Roy Smex Stage Deluxe, had an angel painted on it, and Babe Stovall called his name in it. And Jerry Jeff was leaving Dallas. He was staying with a, a Hungarian gypsy uh, named Andre. And um, Jerry Jeff had a chance to go to New York to join this band Circus Maximus with some friends of his. So he sold the Roy Smeck to Donnie Brooks. And then about, I guess, four or five months later, Donnie had a chance to go to Nashville and start playing harmonica with Waylon. And so Donnie sold it to me for 250 bucks in the condition that I wouldn't sell it to anybody either but him or Jerry Jeff. So that was cool. So then uh, somewhere in the, whenever that was, in the 70s, I was uh, playing at the last run up in New Mexico and playing the games when all of a sudden Jerry Jeff walked in. So I tried to turn around and hide the guitar because I knew he'd want it. So he traded me. He said, i got to have that guitar. So he borrowed the guitar and he wrote that old beat-up guitar and Charlie Dunn and just all these songs up there. And just, you know, so he said, i, I got to have it back. So he traded me this Jerry Jeff Walker Guild guitar that, that Guild had made for him. But instead of having, it had, had uh, instead of 14 frets, the neck had 15 for some reason. And, uh, and it would not stay in tune. It just, I mean, it was a, it was like about $1,200 guitar back then. So he traded that to me, and then I eventually traded that to Siegel Fry for a Dobro, I think. So, you know, but yeah, that's how I met Jerry Jeff. You mentioned Charlie Dunn. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Capitol of Satterley. They're in, uh, in Austin. He, uh, he, uh, he was the guy who did all the boots, you know. But yeah, Charlie Dunn was, they were, it was, I can't remember what studio it's on now. It's right near the Capitol, Capitol of Satterley. Did uh, Charlie Dunn ever make you boots? No, I couldn't afford them at the time. I was I was more into you know acne rough outs. That's, I still wear them, you know. As a matter of fact, but uh, no, I never did uh, um, have him make me a pair of boots. I knew him. We used to go down there and hang out with Jerry Jeff. You know, it's one of those things where uh, you know you just everybody just kind of just knew everybody back then. Yeah. I love that kind of song. I love yeah. that song. Yeah, story. Yeah, but Jerry Jeff has that quality of making everything. Like when you're listening to Pissing in the Wind. Yeah. You can relate to that. We, <laughs> hey, I was supposed to thought I'd get a co-write. We were, uh, Willie Nelson was playing at the Longhorn Ballroom, and Jerry Jeff had never met Willie, and I'd run into Jerry Jeff on some flight. I was flying up to Dallas, and I met Jerry Jeff and, God, B.C. Cooper and Susan on the plane, and we were going to fly to Dallas to see Willie. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I know Willie. We'll go, yeah, well, come on, we'll go there. So we, uh. Well, the plane was delayed and something happened. So finally, Jerry was drinking. So we rented a car and, and drove to Dallas. And somewhere along the way, he stopped and by the side of I-35 and, you know, took a leak and <laughs> and uh, came back in. God, pissing in the wind again. And I went, yeah. So then, then later on, he came up and wrote it. That's how I remember it. You know, then we went up there and met Willie at the deal, and somebody stole Jerry Jeff's hat. And, oh, it was it was a mess. Was it par for the course? Yeah, really. <laughs> um, Willie Nelson had his record label, Lone Star Records. He just signed all of his friends, me and From Hoax, Billy Carroll, Billy Callery, just... Gleason Slodge and, you know, just his buddies because what was happening is his record contract with CBS was coming up and Polygram or Polydor was courting him, so they gave him his own label. 
So Willie called me up and said, I need to have an album out. Okay. I need it pretty quick. So when? Well, next Monday. So I went up that weekend and got all these demos from Tyler and we went in, uh, up in Dallas and recorded and put a record and they put it out. So anyhow, we did this tour. So we were playing, um, got us, uh, did this tour. So they got us a show there at Possum Holler in Nashville. It was George Jones joint. So we go there and play. We play our set. We finish the set. We walk in and there's Hank Jr. and Jerry Lee Lewis and George Jones. And George is just, you know, I mean, all three of them are just drinking out of a bottle. You know, and George is going, Tammy, put a peace bond on me. Oh, George, you got to help me. And <laughs> it was just, so anyhow, we're just kind of sitting there. and just a bit. So anyhow, they said, let's go, you know, let's go play. So we go, yeah, we'll back you up. So we're, so, but this time there's maybe 10, 15 people in the place, right? So we walk out on stage. Our band, Terry Ware, Jim Hurts, and Dennis Meehan, and all of a sudden, Hank Jr., Jerry Lewis, and George Jones come walking out with us. All of a sudden, people are going, my God, you know, this is holy, you know, this is. So they come up there. So Jerry Lee goes over this kind of upright piano and hits a few keys, and George kind of puts on the guitar, and Hank kind of puts on this other guitar, and all of a sudden, Jerry's sitting there hitting this deal, and all of a sudden, George kind of do it. All of a sudden, George goes, I don't want to do this. And I said, Jerry goes, me neither. And they take it out and they, and they walk off. <laughs> you know? And so, the, I mean, they're just perfect. It's like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> Back there, they're, yeah, let's go play. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Stevie Ray in uh, D.C. I was, uh, after my dad died, well, I mean, I'd always drank and, you know, back in, whenever I first started, you know, drank and did everything. You know, I was pretty much a garbage head. And then um, after my dad died, it was just really, really, uh, you know, it just came up and darkness swooped down on me, man. And uh, and then Stevie Ray in B.C. did what they call a 12-step call. They came over and. Uh, through a <clears throat> a dancer there in Dallas who had gotten sober and met Stevie at, at the Aquarius group, told him about me and asked if I'd uh, talk to him about my drinking and stuff. So I said, yeah, sure, Stevie Ray. Yeah. So he came over, and it's, I talk about it in the book, too. It was just some weird Abbott and Costello routine, almost, about what was going on. And But he was very instrumental. He came over and... As they say, he shared his experience, strength, and hope. Kind of told me what it was like, what had happened, what it was like now. And got me kind of said, here's here's what I did. And um, got me in, uh, you know, uh, into recovery. Had you been around him quite a lot before that? Not a lot. We'd, you know, we, he rec- recorded over at Riverside Studios there in Austin. And we'd, I came in one morning after being up all night. And he'd been up mixing his record all night. And... <clears throat> I think we shared a bump. So, you know, and just kind of would run into each other a little bit like that. Gosh, there's a picture I really wish I had. We were at the Riverside Studios, and I, I don't want to do the name there, but there was a, off the, a little deal there. There's a picture of me and Stevie Ray sitting there, and all of a sudden, the Herschel, 
Give me I want to take a picture. So we put us over in this corner. He said, y'all stand over there. We're standing <laughs> by these cardboard boxes. It says, RS receipts. And then right next to it is a space heater. <laughs> so he takes a picture of me and Stevie Ray sat next to this deal. And then uh, uh, I guess about a week later, there was a fire. <laughs> but he had proof <laughs> to show the IRS. I had all my receipts here, <laughs> but then there was a fire. <laughs> And uh, I don't, I think <laughs> that was his, the thinking. <laughs> well, I had my receipts, but right there. <laughs> there was a fire. They were in these boxes. Here's a picture. <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, what a coincidence. There was going to be a space heater just right next to it. Now, that's, you know, that, that's what I kind of heard later was going on. But well, Did you see him playing in bars around town? Oh, yeah. He's played the Antones and. Um, it had to be a force of nature. It was, you know, it was, uh, it was like the Stevie Ray had the same. It's like with Freddie King, you know, just mesmerizing. Even walking on stage, hadn't even played a note, and you just couldn't take your eyes off, you know, either one of them, Freddie or Stevie Ray. I mean, it was, that's how sucked they were out of the room, both of them. You know, there was just something about both those guys. Did you get to meet Freddie King? Oh yeah, I got a picture upstairs, man, of him playing poker. He used to be uh used to uh, Mother Blues. Uh, Bill Simon had this old club up there in Dallas called Mother Blues, and Freddie would play there. And then after it would shut down, they'd have poker games up front. So up upstairs, it'd be Freddie and uh, Bugs Henderson, Nick Zinger, and just all the cats, and you playing poker. And uh, Freddie played this game called Lucy Ducey, which is like seven card stud. But if a two came up, face up, the next card would be wild. And then if another two came up, then that card wasn't wild anymore, but the next card was. It was just, it was actually called Freddie Wins, you know, because <laughs> it was just, because he kept having to explain the rules. Did you play poker with Willie? Well, we played, we did a tour. We did a we did this one tour when I did the, the when the record came out, we were playing up somewhere. It was Willie and, Don Bowman and me and Pooty were all playing poker in some hotel room. And all of a sudden, there's this guy sitting on the, on the one of the bed there, just kind of sitting there. And all of a sudden, you know, just he just nobody really knew him or whatever. We couldn't figure out. So we played poker. So finally, that guy gets up and leave. And uh, so I think Bowman says, "Anybody know who that was?" And uh, somebody said, "Well, no, not really." He said, "Well, he's probably either a you know." A, a country disc jockey or a narc. And Willie goes, well, I hope he's a narc. (laughs) (laughs) I'd prefer that. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. But yeah, that was, so we played poker with Willie. Yeah, we did that tour. The record is supposed to come out on Lone Star and we did a 38 cities in 42 days. We played Houston and then the tour started in Fargo, North Dakota in February up through Green Bay, up the East Coast. We played like ice skating rinks where they just put a tarp over the ice and chair. Oh, man, it was cold. And remember Don Bowman had this, he would um, open the show and his, his song was, Send Out the Clown to Check Out the Sound. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, there was no sound check in those days. You just go out and do it. But I really appreciate you 
having me over and uh, sharing stories. Oh, you bet. I enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure for me, too, man. Beautiful. A lot of the stuff I've said so close to the truth, I've come to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Ray for inviting me into his living room in Wimberley, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Ray at RayWiley.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short of cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.